Campaign 2016. It's settling down. Sort of. Rubio is out. Bernie Sanders says he's in until the end. Trump promises riots in Cleveland. Obama tells Democrats to forget about authenticity and unite behind Hillary. What's next? The Times political editor, Carolyn Ryan, and ace political reporters, Michael Barbaro and Maggie Haberman, are here, and we're going to talk about the campaign and what we and they expect next. I'm Susan Lehman. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having us. So I want to ask these reporters a very simple question. There was violence in Chicago. There's been ugliness on the screens. And yet Trump keeps winning. Why? There's just so much winning. We're getting tired of all the Trump winning, as he would say. (laughs) I think that Trump has a base of support that has been with him for months and months and months and months. And we saw it in the polling last year. We saw that he would commit a gaffe or he would say something that to most people sounded unimaginable for a politician and his numbers would either hold or go up. And that was particularly true after there were uh, terrorist attacks in California and in Paris. So I think that he had this base that just was with him and they were never going to leave. And in this divided field, all he has to get is 35 percent to 40 percent. He now had this happen uh, after March 15th, where he won 99 delegates in Florida, a winner-take-all state that vaulted him hugely ahead of everybody else, and has made it that he is more than halfway toward the nomination in terms of secure delegates. That has led to something of a party freakout. I keep feeling like the Republicans are having this delayed reaction to Trump, where it's, we're going to stop him this time, or this is all going to fall apart in this state. Not so much. Michael, give me three adjectives that right now sum up the emotional, psychic state of the Republican Party. Panicked is the obvious one. Maybe even duress because they feel like someone else now controls the party. That's a noun for you people listening. (laughs) (laughs) Can I answer the question you asked to Maggie in a different way? Yes. I want to answer that question by talking about Marco Rubio. Why is Trump doing so well by saying the unsayable and seeming like a person who's just on one extended improvised riff. Let's look at the candidate who just dropped out, Marco Rubio, who seemed so perfect, so programmed, so polished. In the old way that we thought about campaigns, it looked like an A term paper from college. That guy was going to just cruise, you know, into the process. He was going to do well. But it turned out that all those things were negatives this time around. And people saw him as robotic and rude and and totally wrong. And so it's useful to think of the Trump foils and why they keep falling one by one in order to help yourself understand why he is succeeding. The day after the primary uh, in which he had such commanding performance, he came out and he said there could be riots if he's denied the nomination. He said he's no longer going to do or he's not going to do the next debate, which was promptly canceled. What was going on there? I mean, he's, he's rejecting the, the, the premise of a party while becoming its face. And it's a really historic achievement in some ways and an anomaly to be able to do that. And I think what Maggie and I and, and all of our colleagues have heard from Trump voters is such a raw and abiding uh, revulsion for the Republican Party. Trump understood that before any of us did. These still feel like eye-opening interviews every time we do them when we talk to Trump voters and they and they say how much they hate the party. It's like a hatred that's almost beyond measure and and, and beyond sometimes even reason because it's it's another faceless institution that's really never in their minds been for them. So Trump is is quite wisely finding ways almost every day or every other day 
to to put his thumb in the face of the party and say, I don't need you and I don't want you. But remember the irony of this. He is using the apparatus that the Republican Party has created over 100, 150 years in order to become its nominee, if that's where he's headed, and it looks that way. So it's it's an incredible thing to need the party in order to get there while pushing it away and, 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 and in some ways tearing it asunder. Maggie, when he um, when Donald Trump wakes up at Trump Tower and gets out of bed and looks in the mirror, does he see a president? It's, it's so funny that you just asked that because I was thinking as Michael was talking about a conversation I had with a Trump ally this morning. Uh, and I asked this person, do you think that Trump want, just wants to win or does he actually want to be president? Which one is it? And the person said, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, at this point, he does want to be president, but that initially this person believes it did sort of start as, you know, I'm going to win. I'm a competitive person. And, and even before that, it was, I'm going to see how far this goes. And then at some point when he saw he was resonating, it got there. Donald Trump has enormous faith in his own instincts. Um, and that has been reaffirmed for him by the process of winning. Because to Michael's point, um, Donald Trump figured out the three uh, core issues for the GOP base this time without a pollster, trade, immigration, and turning away from the George W. Bush neoconservative foreign policy. He, he has had weird moments of sort of policy discord, whereas the other day in the, in the final debate, what turns out is the final debate, uh, he said he would send 20,000 to 30,000 troops into Syria. That was not in keeping with other things he has said about, uh, about, about you know, not overextending the military from the U.S. in, in Mideast conflicts. But he has, generally speaking, relied on his own advice, and he has gotten pretty far doing that. So in his mind, he thinks, and he said this in an interview, again, the number of things, you could write a book about the number, and many people, I'm sure, will write books, but the number of things that Donald Trump says that no other politician could or would say that you start to lose track of them. He was asked in a Morning Joe interview, who are your advisors? And he said, I listen, essentially, I listen to my own brain. I have a good brain. This is how he sees it. Whether that will start to change when he gets the nomination, assuming that he is not blocked in some way, but I still think the odds are about 70 percent that he's the nominee. Uh, that is really an open question is can he be molded? But he does believe at this point, I think, that he can do it. Are there any messages that seem to be working against him in terms of advertising or attacks? I think there was one um, ad that was quite good against him or, or potentially powerful uh, by the American Future Fund, uh, which is a, a C4. We don't know who their donors are. Everybody went up against Trump pretty late in the process. And so nobody really did anything prolonged or sustained until the race was basically past them. One of the problems was that there were a bunch of different groups and they were all airing different types of ads with conflicting messages. But the, the ads that I suspect had some impact, and you will see again in the fall, are these ads featuring students from Trump University giving testimonials about how they were, in their words, robbed, basically. And Michael would be able to speak to that a lot more, but I, their testimonials were pretty powerful. I mean, the, the, the biggest liability it feels like for Trump would be a series of impending revelations and exposés that show that the very American that he has instilled so much confidence in over these last few months are the, are the same people, according to allegations, that he's kind of fleeced. These are the product of lawsuits and attorneys general investigations, class action cases. You know, the the claims, if you just to be reductive about it, are that he he had operated many kinds of businesses that targeted vulnerable people who believed in his brand and in his name and spent large sums of money to buy a part of it or to buy its wisdom or its panache. And so 
if those voters are led to believe, and this would be a tall order for his rivals, no matter how well funded, but if they are led to believe that actually he spent the last 10 years getting very rich by finding ways to kind of steal their money or you know run businesses that were unscrupulous and take their money, then I think that could be really, really powerful. And this, of course, for those who remember the 2012 presidential campaign, would be somewhat analogous to the to the uh, campaign that was waged against Mitt Romney, you know. Does the focus of your reporting change as the campaign winnows and questions like that emerge as bigger and more important questions? It is changing. I mean, obviously, the smaller field allows us to scrutinize those who remain in a different way and also look at the dynamics among them. Uh, And you've probably picked up uh, already that there's a dynamic emerging about how the Democrats will take on Trump what kind of ugliness and what kind of atmosphere that will create. And also, I do think that um, even though Trump is a curious character for us at The New York Times because we have such a long relationship with him, I do think that admirably our colleagues and Michael among them are producing uh, in-depth investigative pieces about the Trump record that have a lot of resonance uh, right now as this looks very real. Let's talk for a minute about the Hillary-Trump contest. Are they ginning up inside both of those campaigns for what looks like a contest? Inside the campaign, it's the brain of Trump is is much more than some sort of extensive uh, effort. Uh, In terms of Clinton, she had this debate against Bernie Sanders. uh, It was either last week or the week before, and it was very striking. She was asked an on-point question, and, and some might not feel it was an appropriate question, but I suspect Trump supporters would feel that way. It was to her and Sanders, and it was, is he a racist? Is Trump a racist? And she not only didn't answer the question directly, it's pretty much a meatball over the plate if you're her. And what you're trying to do is rebuild the Obama coalition, which is large numbers of younger voters, black voters and Hispanic voters. But instead, she talked about his comments are un-American and we don't need division like that. But she sounded very careful of not criticizing him beyond a certain point. And if you remember at the end of last year, and Amy Chozik and I wrote about this, uh, she was using Trump as something of a rhetorical device in her speeches, and Trump did not like that. So Trump started attacking her and her husband, doing much more damage to them in two weeks than Republicans have managed to do in years and years. And it seems to me, and again, you don't want to put a candidate on the couch, but it does seem to me that he is in her head. Say a little bit about what we can expect from Trump in terms of taking on Hillary. Well, I, by the way, I find that so fascinating. Like, I mean, essentially, she's got a way the tide of anger that she could inspire among voters she already really struggles with, which are white, working class, um, general election Americans. And so as easy as it would seem for those of us in a room on a drawing board to come up with potential lines of attack against someone like Donald Trump, they may look at those all and think, you know what, they're, they're going to come and bite us right back. Trump has already started putting out some web videos on, on Instagram and Facebook, which social media are, are his favorite tools. It's really, really interesting uh, about this race. And he's in some ways used it better than anybody. But he has put these videos up just about her and suggestive of scandal. He has accused her of being an enabler. He has said things that that are designed to both provoke a reaction and to silence her criticisms of him. So the other thing that has happened in the last few weeks, and I hear Republicans talk about this a lot, is uh, BuzzFeed did this dump of Howard Stern radio interviews with Trump in which he said some some really uh, uh, tough 
nasty, mean things about women, uh, about their looks, uh, very objectifying. And those are ads that I think you will see. Those are the kinds of comments that if Clinton were not concerned about what he will say in return, she would, I think, just swing for the fences on. But it is very much in her head. And so she's going to be really, I think, it's it's something like swallowing a lemon. I don't think she is. I think she knows that electorally that there are. Yes, he will do well with white working class voters in some areas, but he will also turn off uh, college educated white voters in other areas. And so it's not a slam dunk that he's going to pick up all these states. She thinks that she has a chance to really perform well with someone like him at the top of the ticket, but it's going to mean taking an awful lot of abuse that is going to be, I think, well, can I just make her. one prediction? I think you can take to the bank. Donald Trump will come up with a phrase that he will attach to her. Let's review the previous attached phrases that have been so powerful and destructive to his Republican rivals. Low energy, Jeb Bush. Little Marco, Senator Marco Rubio. So a parlor game that is no doubt occurring across campaigns and newsrooms in the United States is what will be the name that he gives to Secretary Clinton. He learned a lot from Spy Magazine. And, and here's the thing that the media will have to be careful about participating in. Such a name will be given birth, she will then be asked repeatedly to respond to it, and thus the the wheel will be in motion. And, and what is what is everyone's responsibility in that situation and to sort of deal with that? You would know better than I, but it seemed as if she were releasing a little test bubble with the love and kindness trope. How do you think that is going to fare in the face of Donald Trump and what looks very much not like a love-kindness fest? I think that she probably will find a different line as we get closer to the general election. I, it works better when you're running against Bernie Sanders, and I think it can serve a dual purpose. But I think that she will end up needing to come up with a tougher response. I will say, though, and I was thinking about this as Michael was just talking, and I totally agree that there's going to be something that he injects into the bloodstream, and we're all going to have to decide exactly how we pick that up. He but, has a genius for insult. It's his distillation of somebody's vulnerabilities into a pithy phrase is a little terrifying. I do think in terms of Hillary Clinton, the message is essentially seasoned, serious, not scary, will not embarrass you. And in some ways it plays to who she is, right? She's not exciting. She's not charismatic. She's not dramatic, flamboyant, but she's steady. And I think what you will see and will, I think, in a lot of ways change the texture of the race is the engagement of President Obama and the argument that the Democratic Party and maybe even some Republicans will start to make about the seriousness of the race and the seriousness of the choice. We already saw President Obama begin to make that argument, as we just reported, privately behind closed doors with donors in Austin, where he talked about how the, the moment is going to arrive pretty soon where the Democratic primary will wind down and the party's going to have to come together behind the nominee. And then he went into what was, I think, the real point, which was uh, papering over the, the flaws that people see in Clinton's candidacy. He talked about how he knows that she doesn't excite some people and that uh, there are these questions about authenticity. But he essentially said authenticity is overrated, that George W. Bush was authentic, and then he sort of let it trail off, and the suggestion being, we know Obama doesn't think George W. Bush was a great president. Um, I think that that is not just about being in contrast with Sanders, who is seen as authentic, but in contrast with Trump, who is viewed as authentic. One of your most powerful stories over the last few weeks was this uh, story that told us how we got here on the Trump train. And uh, it opened with the scene of uh, Donald Trump at the White House Correspondents' Dinner 
and the kind of effect that that evening had on him. Can you describe that a little bit? I can. It, he will also say that I'm a dishonest journalist for uh, saying that it had an effect on him because he says he loved that dinner and it was wonderful. But Donald Trump, and I was in the room that night. I was not working here yet. I was at uh, Politico. Trump had been driving home birtherism about President Obama for many, many weeks at that point, and he was considering running for president himself. So this was May of 2011, early May, late April. And by the time Trump got to the dinner, it was like our colleague Alex Burns, and he said this on Twitter, describes it as like the pig's blood prom scene with Carrie, where essentially <laughs> Trump got invited to the dinner by Lolly Weymouth, then of the Washington Post, huge deal socially. He walked in, he told reporters when he was asked, what do you think that the president will say about you? He said, I'd be surprised if he acknowledged me. And he meant that seriously. And he sat down and for something like 20 combined minutes between what Obama said and what Seth Meyers of Saturday Night Live, who was the speaker that night, said, he was just savaged. It was mocking him as a fake, mocking him as fluffy, mocking The Apprentice. And Trump barely cracked a smile. The people at his table, and we spoke to Marcus Broccoli, who was then the executive editor of the Washington Post, who was at the table next to where Trump was, and he said that it was it was awkward and strange and that Trump left with, as he put it, maximum efficiency. And that was a moment that Trump likes to say he is the best counterpuncher around. He got really punched, and it, it accelerated this path of his toward making good on a threat that he had made for basically 25 years about running for president. And you can sense the eagerness, if not giddiness, that President Obama feels about taking taking on Trump, uh, even ridiculing Trump. And I think Obama, as a factor in the coming months, can't be overstated the impact that he could have on Democratic turnout, on Democratic spirits, too. I mean, it's been a little bit dispiriting for some of the Democratic rank and file to watch Hillary Clinton struggle with Bernie Sanders, but I do think the president will be a powerful force. And do you expect to see him out giving his rhetorical flourish to Hillary's Yes, he's been effort. restrained so far, yeah, but I sure really has. think that he will. He's already become a much more forceful and articulate critic of Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton has. I mean, when he gave basically a classroom teacher style rebuke to the behavior in this campaign, he's already taking that role. He's just not using the names yet. And I think you can imagine easily this transitioning from, you know, headmaster wagging his finger to somebody going to Ohio and Florida and other places and, and saying, this is not the country we want. This is not the candidate we want. This is not who we are. And, you know, he has some stature. He is he is president of the United States and he's our first African-American president. And so when he speaks... He's sure looking presidential these days. Oh, his numbers just keep... He's the beneficiary the of the comparison with this field, for sure. I think... He's, he was now at 53% approval, I think, at this point. So, yeah. And do you have a sense of how the Hillary camp is gearing up for a fight with Trump? Please tell me they're not preparing 52-point policy papers. They are, to some extent, uh, honestly. I don't think that's going to be the only thing they're preparing. I think they're preparing a series of, of scathing advertisements, too. Um, they're combing through his record. They were late to this, the same way the entire rest of the political world was. They did not think that he was serious. They did not think he would last. They thought he was a useful device. If they're being honest, they would rather face Ted Cruz than Donald Trump. There is so much material with Trump to go back through and so many different types of messages that they can pick that what folks 
within the campaign have said to me is they're having trouble picking exactly which one to seize on. So some of them think that the it's but it's really true that they think that the, maybe the way to go at him is to paint him as a loser because the thing he values the most is winning, or do you paint him as a fraud? I'm not saying I think that. That's just what they're discussing. Do you suggest he's not a real businessman? Do you paint him as uh, bad towards women based on the things he's said and his comments in the past? They're trying to figure out how you have a linear thread for all of that. The other big you know, question mark is how they deploy Bill Clinton, right. who, who will be something of a red flag to a bull uh, as he is out on the stump. I think they want to protect Hillary, and she does not do well in the kind of slugfest. And Bill Clinton could engage and still kind of keep it from touching the candidate. There was some talk in, I think Amy Chozik may have had a piece of developing uh, Bill Clinton more as a social media personality because they don't have anybody who matches Trump's sort of reach on social media. But I think they think, you know, he has the nimbleness in the largeness to kind of engage with Trump. It actually fits perfectly with Patrick Healy's piece about Clinton ha- lacking the magnetism in the flesh, but right, where right. the fire but where is, is she on? I mean, if we're going to take the critical approach, where is she on cable after she wins? She's not doing three or four, or in the Trumpian case, seven interviews in the morning. She's not working the media the way he does. And of course, the media isn't there just to be worked. But... There is a strategic brilliance to the way he's done this, and she's never shown an appetite or much of an aptitude for exploiting the news vacuums and the moments. I mean, she could, if she so chose, be as much of a figure on cable as he is. She could, if she chose, find ways to be provocative and generate news cycles. She's not that person now, and if she's not going to be that person, there's going to be a massive deficit in especially the cable news coverage apparently 10 times more coverage is what they found he got in the Republican cycle, according to Upshot, uh, our colleagues. So this is a real potential crisis for them. Maggie has made the point very smartly that Hillary Clinton has never run against anybody who's as big a celebrity or even bigger a celebrity than she is. And she's really bedeviled by anybody who has some nimbleness and suppleness with the media. And uh, it's probably her weakest area as a candidate. So the contrast will be incredibly striking. I think that's right. I I think that she's also one of the things that uh, Amy has focused on correctly is that, and as have other uh, colleagues of ours, Clinton has gone, I don't know how many days it is now, without addressing the traveling press around her, which just would have been unimaginable in the 2008 race that she would do that. Uh, She doesn't enjoy certain elements of this. And Trump, even though I think that he does not like criticism, despite his claim to the contrary, uh, just based on behavior, um, he will engage with you. And, and he I will sure s- likes to be out in front of a crowd. Well, he likes, to be, he likes to be in front of a camera and he likes to be in front of a microphone and he likes to be in front of on social media. He likes to be the subject of the conversation. And he likes and he will say this and has repeatedly. He likes to start a conversation. He likes to facilitate a conversation. One of the things that makes him uh, both an interesting person and, and somewhat dangerous as a as a political leader is that he is willing to share completely unverified and sometimes dangerous information. Um, and we've seen this a couple of times. He, he sort of mentions conspiracy theories or will pass along confidently that vaccinations cause autism, despite the fact that the medical community has really debunked this. Um, he will raise questions about, you know, that the, the thing that he said last either October or November about thousands and thousands of Muslims in New Jersey cheering the fall of the Twin Towers. That did not happen that anybody can verify. But that's a pretty dangerous thing to put into the bloodstream. However, 
this is the byproduct of the fact that he is so accessible and engaged, as are almost all members of his family. That is not the case with the Clintons. What's your advice for Hillary Clinton and for Donald Well, what Trump? I was just thinking was she could easily take the wrong path and do what Marco Rubio did, which is be drawn into his way of handling the campaign, be more provocative. I mean, she could take a question at a news conference and say, that's a stupid question. That would be very Trumpian. And maybe it would be very exciting for a moment. But once the noise settled, she could end up looking a little too much like Donald Trump, which is what happened to Marco Rubio. And I think the Rubio campaign would tell you that that was one of their gravest mistakes in the last few weeks of their campaign was... And by the way, the reason they did it was was not because they thought it was the right thing to do or because they thought it was going to look good for Marco Rubio to be that way. It was simply to attempt to keep pace with his media saturation. They found that when they did that, cable news would suddenly we're, carry we're his events. Yeah, would carry his events live. So I'm not in the business of giving advice to candidates, uh, but it would seem that they have they would have to find some vessel, some way in which to match the way in which he can dominate a day, day after day after day. Um, And they need to settle on some meaningful message about his business record. Uh, Maggie and I have often spent time talking about the famous Romney ad that um, Democrats came out with in 2012 in which a worker said that it felt as if Mitt Romney had put him in his own coffin. It's a, it's a more complicated story than that, but just think about the power of that message. There was another ad from that same period, and it, it still resonates. The campaign, Obama campaign criticized it as over the top. It was done by the super PAC, but where a man who had lost his insurance in one of the layoffs due to Mitt Romney's uh, private equity firm, his wife got cancer, she died, and it became known informally in the political class as the Mitt Romney killed a person ad, which obviously is not overtly what it said, but that was the message. You are going to see, I think, something like that. The problem is that you will see ads about, like that about Hillary Clinton, too, related to Benghazi and all sorts of things. There was a focus group several months ago about Donald Trump and uh, sort of probing for his weaknesses. And one of the few things that actually affected people who liked him uh, but turned them off was uh, something involving one of our colleagues when he was mocking and mimicking uh one of our uh, colleagues, Serge Kovaleski, and who has a physical condition, and he was sort of mocking the way his arms are. There was a cruelty to it that people really reacted to. I think anything that sort of reveals cruelty on the part of Trump could be quite potent. That's especially true, I think, for evangelical voters who Republicans still do need to come out. That is their base. And that's a group that he has done relatively well with. He has not won a a majority. He's won a plurality. But the evangelical voters who go with other candidates, a story that Tom Kaplan and I did many weeks ago to this front, we talked to a lot of voters uh, who identified themselves as evangelical, who either supported Trump or supported Cruz or supported some others. But those who weren't with Trump, many of them mentioned that moment about surge because to evangelical voters, uh, that's, you know, taking care of a child with a disability is seen as life affirming. You heard Sarah Palin talk about that a lot in 2008 about her son who has Down syndrome. And so it struck it struck them as cruelty plus sort of going against values. Mm-hmm. And that is something that you have seen some groups that have criticized Trump or done ads against Trump put into their messaging, but there's been nothing that's sort of zeroed in on that. Let's talk about you guys for a second, because this is inside the times. Are you tired? Do you dream about these candidates? How do you keep going? Well, I mean, I have a bottle of gin at home, 
Um, and maybe not just at home. I mean, <laughs> just kidding. This could be a public service announcement for for everybody who knows us and maybe those who don't know us, which is we don't necessarily want to talk about this at dinner, in the hallways of our building on the Upper West Side, in traffic somewhere on the street. Like Everybody wants to talk to a New York Times reporter about the campaign, and we talk about it all day long. My own personal thing is I just sometimes would like for there to be a little private space where I don't talk about it. I'm so good with people ta- wanting to talk about this. I'm f- endlessly fascinated by it. Uh, my children talk about it. I, I'm I'm fine with it. But yes, I'm exhausted. And here's my giant, like, 16-ounce cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee. So what really excites you about the road ahead when you look forward to all those people asking you about the campaign and about 900 million more stump speeches? What are you really excited about? The Trump convention, period, yeah, full stop. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I, no, no, no. The Trump convention and then the what I'm assuming, I don't know what the number are. I think it'll be three, three presidential debates. And that is the other thing, by the way, that the Clinton people are looking toward in a very, very serious way. Remember the famous moment for Hillary Clinton in New York in 2000 was when Rick Lazio walked over to her podium with a, a pledge that he wanted her to sign banning soft money on either side. They believe, and they may be right, they may be wrong, but they believe that Trump is, has the potential to have some kind of a moment that is going to make that Lazio thing you know, look like a play date, basically, that he will do something that makes her look much bigger in stature or makes her look like she's being attacked in a, in a wrong way, in an inappropriate way. Uh, or but maybe so, asks about the capital of a foreign country and <laughs> he can't answer it. But that happened with George W. Bush too, and he got elected in two thousand. So I don't. I think that I feel like I feel like we passed that town many many miles ago. Um, I am looking forward to the debates. I do think that Michael's right. The convention. This is going to be possibly the first ever Republican convention where, you know, you'll see the Rules Committee being broadcast in prime time. It's going to be really interesting. Good theater, Caroline. No, all of that and more. I mean, I do think that there's possibility of um, a third party uh, run, which would make this all the more interesting. It's getting a little bit late, but would be fabulous. And I do think, you know, watching the establishment of both parties contend with something that feels radioactive to them is going to be fascinating. High comedy, high theater. High intensity. So I imagine you guys are tired. You've been on the trail. What about the candidates? They must be exhausted. Are they notably weaker? Are they falling down on the trail? What is going on with them after months? Trump is the the one who's really not used to this in this field of people who have been doing this forever, essentially, including Sanders. When I spoke to him the other day for the story that Alex Burns and I wrote on Sunday about the origins of Trump, I was very struck at how fatigued he sounded. And this was actually when he was on his way to that Chicago rally that ended up getting canceled. He sounded loopy, for lack of a better way of putting it. And this is this is a different type of schedule than he's used to. He's a very, to quote him, high energy guy. There's no question about that. Uh, he is very, very engaged in interviews. But this is just a different level of intensity when you are on a presidential campaign and especially these rallies that he does they're draining like i've seen him come off the stage and he's he's very sweaty and he's he's you know swigging water from a bottle it's like an athlete who just came off the field right except but tellingly it's not an athlete and he's not a healthy eater he's not somebody who is into fitness uh we can i can remember the mornings in 2012 where no matter how early you thought you were getting up Mitt romney was already on the treadmill um, and and I, it's actually a really fascinating question of of what Donald Trump's physical endurance is, and it, there's a reason why he only seems to have 
one and ambitiously two events a day. Traditionally, in, in presidential politics, candidates can do three, four, five events a day. And think about what his life is like. I don't know if you or the listeners saw the story about his longtime butler and describing the scene at Mar-a-Lago and the degree to which the world was sort of built around him and accommodating his needs. And now you submit yourself to the rigors of a campaign. There's just so much that you can't control. And there's just, you you kind of put yourself at the mercy of it. And, and you can sort of sense how draining it's becoming for him. Well, imagine being watched 24 hours a day. I mean, I know he's going out and getting in front of cameras, but I think that sounds like heaven to him. But I do think <laughs> that if there's something that that, is, that you advan- would advantage Clinton on in a general election over him, and you would with Sanders too, is just that a general election is such a different order of magnitude than a primary, both in terms of the types of activities you have to do. You cannot just do these big rallies. You actually really do have to do traditional retail, which Trump has no interest in. He feels and he sees he sees an efficiency in these rallies. I'm contacting more people. I'm touching more people. Uh, but the degree to which your scrutiny is going to increase and, and his he and his folks feel like they've had a ton of it. They've seen nothing yet. Why can I challenge that? Why do you think you have to do more kind of hand-to-hand, go to coffee shop, or or as we call it, retail, in a general election. Isn't it possible that he could show for the first time that you need to do virtually none of that? Well, it's certainly possible, and this has been such a weird cycle that I'm not going to say definitively no, but I will say that, and we are in in an election where, as you wrote, both of the front runners are viewed negatively, she less negatively than he, and ultimately, at the end of the day, this is about who is seen slightly better than someone else. But one of the key factors in the Obama-Romney race, and this is a key in every statewide race, is cares about people like me. When you poll people and you ask them, do you think this candidate cares about people like you, doesn't care about people like you, that type of retail engaged politicking matters a lot more than standing up and holding a rally. We'll see. Thank you, Carolyn Ryan, Michael Barbaro, Maggie Haberman, and thank you, Jocelyn Gonzalez, who produces our podcast. This is Inside the Times. I'm Susan Lehman.